You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 139. As we talk about the issues in our day that require us to be bold. The darker the days get, the bolder Christians must be. And so for these four weeks, we're talking about some issues that require us to boldly proclaim what God has said about some of the things in our culture that would be considered controversial. Last week, we looked at the origin of man. The issue of abortion versus, I'm sorry, evolution versus creation. Today we're going to be looking at the uh, issue of the, uh, of the sanctity of human life. And that's going to uh, show us from God's word what our position should be on things like homicide and suicide and assisted physician suicide and things like abortion and even things like stem cell research on aborted fetuses. So we're going to look at what God has to say about these issues, and we're going to say it boldly and unapologetically. So you ready for this bold statement? Three of you are. <laughs> Strap on your seatbelt. And by the way, let me just say, normally we, uh, we end the service with three words. If you come to harvest, you know what these three words are. What are they? I feel like I need to say that at the beginning of this message. No matter what else you hear me say, please know. You are loved. You are loved. And no matter what you've done, you are loved. So here's the bold statement. God is intricately involved in the creation of every human life. And because we believe that God created everyone in his image and for his glory, every human life is to be valued and protected. Whatever a culture believes about the sanctity of human life will determine its laws and its practices. Let me just say this. Abortion is not a political football. It's not something you use to leverage votes. And even though in our culture candidates may come out on one side or the issue depending on which way the polls are falling, we believe that God's word has uh, eternal truth that we need to wrap our minds and our belief systems around. And so before you cast a vote for any particular political candidate, I believe it would be important for you to know where that candidate lines up, especially on this issue. The two major political parties in our country are diametrically opposed to one another on this issue. Now, we're not going to make a political statement here today because I am talking to you, whoever you are and wherever you come from and whatever you brought in here. I just want to simply acknowledge that we have all grown up in and have been affected by a culture that no longer values the sanctity of human life. And some of you have been very touched by that. I realize that I am talking to women in this room who have had an abortion. As a matter of fact, we're going to hear from one of them before this service is over with. And I just want to be very sensitive to you. As we open up God's word and look at what God has to say about our lives and about what he thinks about our lives, I realize that there are people here who have brought sin into the room. That's 
all of us, by the way. So let me just give permission for all of the perfect people to now be dismissed from the auditorium, okay? No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, we have all at some point made decisions in violation to God's word. And so as we open God's word here today, we want to see the truth about how God views abortion and we want to see the truth about how God views and loves people who will confess and repent from sins as tragic as abortion. And so, if I do my job here right this morning, you will hear a bold proclamation of the truth about the sanctity of life, and you'll hear a bold proclamation of the truth about the power of God's grace to forgive and to cleanse and to heal and to redeem. But the gospel demands that we engage the culture around the issue of the sanctity of human Life. We would rather look away, we would rather ignore it, we would rather just kind of say that's for the halls of Congress or the Supreme Court, and yet you and I are those that represent God in this culture as the church. And so we're just going to wrap our thoughts around three simple points. Here's the first one. Every life is precious to God. Every life is precious to God. Last week we saw this from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, just very simply tells us that God created man in his own image. Last week we kind of looked at the idea that God creates all people, and we looked at the origin of man. Today we're getting very focused and we're realizing that God creates each and every man and woman in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, boys and girls, he created them. And so that means that because we have God's fingerprints stamped on us, we have God's image stamped upon us, that every human life has intrinsic dignity, value, and worth, and purpose. Because what God does, he does with purpose. We understand from scripture that God is the giver of life. We read this in the book of Job chapter 12 verse 10. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Do you know the only thing it would take for you to cease to exist is for God to close his hand? Because in God's hand is your very breath. Every breath you take is dependent upon the giving of life to you. God is the one who gives life. Again, in Job chapter 33, verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Life is a precious gift that God gives. Not only is God the giver of life, but God is ultimately terminator of life the ultimate determining factor of when life ends on this earth is the providence and the sovereignty of God again Job recognized this in chapter 1 verse 21 naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. You may look at that and say, well, what does an ancient book from some guy named Job who had a weird name, what does he know about 
God giving and taking life. Well, let me tell you, he, he said this immediately following the tragic death of his 10 children, much like Horatio Spafford in tragedy and in pain and through losing a loved one through death. Job had the wisdom to step back and say, you know what? Life is a gift from God. It is to be treasured and valued and it is to be released as God sovereignly chooses when life should expire. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, God says, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Life is a sovereign and precious gift from God. And because we believe that, we understand that God not only gives life, but that preborn life is protected by God. That's our second point. Preborn life is protected by God. You've got your Bible open to Psalm 139, and I want us just to walk through this passage understanding God's perspective on preborn life. Look at it here beginning in verse 13. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Just think about that. What it, do you see the words there, formed? That means that God is actively involved in shaping and molding and caring for unborn life. With great artistry and with great design, God knits together. He uses the word knitted. Knits together human life in a mother's womb. It's interesting. God could have brought people onto the planet any way he wanted to. He could have had us crawl out from under a rock. He could have had us hatched from an egg. But God sovereignly chose that human life would would have a, a season around nine months where it's protected and cared for in the womb of a mother. And God uses the words, while that's happening, I am knitting together this body. How many of you ladies would be bold enough in church, bold enough to admit that you knit? Be bold, all of you knitters, okay? You knit a tapestry together, different things in different colors and different designs come together through intentionality and intelligence as you put them together with great care. And many times you're doing that for someone you love. That's exactly what God does. He knits together this human being in the mother's womb. Even just to think about this in terms of our anatomy. There are 12 different systems that are required for you to live. If even one of these systems fails, you can't live. And all 12 of the systems have to be working together in order to sustain life. And what we need to understand is God knits all 12 systems together before a human being arrives through birth. Do you know what these are? You remember your eighth grade science class? Do you remember the skeletal system? How many bones are there in the body? How many bones? How many bones? 
206. Now, people that um, are homeschooling mothers, they knew that immediately. Uh, 206, right? And the homeschoolers like, I have no idea. But the moms knew that, right? 206 bones. Do you know how many of the 206 bones are knit together after you're born? Zero. Do you know how many of the 206 bones are knit together before you were born? 206. God puts together the skeletal system prior to a child being born. How about the nervous system, including the brain and the sensory neurons and the motor neurons? And those, that nervous system actually causes your heart to beat and your lungs to breathe without conscious thought. How many of you are grateful for the fact you did not have to remind yourself to breathe this morning? Or while you were asleep, remind your heart to beat. God put that in you. When did God put that in you? Before you were born. The nervous system or the cardiovascular system with the heart and the arteries and the veins that carry nourishment to different parts of the body or the muscular system. Anybody know how many muscles you have? I realize some of you have more than others. Actually, you don't. You all have the same number. Some are bigger than others. Some are more well-developed. 650 muscles. How many of those muscles were formed after you were born? Zero. They were all formed in a mother's womb. 650. The muscular system, that means that you are not just some big blob. You're not just a slug on a slidewalk. You can actually move. You can actually eat. You can walk. You can get around. You, God gave you those systems. The respiratory system, lungs that exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide. With every breath, you are exhaling things that are poisonous to your body. God put that together. The reproductive system that ensures the human, waste, the, the human race will survive your death because you have a reproductive system and there will be generations that will come from you. The digestive system. Think about the mechanical and the chemical processes involved in the digestive system. It's so amazing. It is so miraculous. It can turn a Cheeto into energy. That's a miracle. <laughs> That's how creative and wise God is. And I am grateful for Cheetos and my digestive system. <laughs> the excretory system that eliminates waste from the body. The immune system. Think about the immune system that defends you from deadly diseases and actually heals your body when you get an infection. God put that system together. The integumentary system, the skin, the hair, the nails that keep cosmetologists in business. The lymphatic system supplies and drains lymph fluid in support of the cardiovascular and the immune system and the genetic system that provides chemical communications with the body using hormones. This is entirely way overactive during the teenage years, but God puts all of these hormones together. Do you know when all 12 of those systems are knit together? Before a human being is born. That's why he says in verse 14, I praise you. I praise you. I stand back in awe and wonder at how you've made me. Notice how we're made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. The words fearfully and wonderfully just in indicate there was intentionality. 
God does things creatively. There's not another person who has ever been or will ever be formed and knitted and made like you. He uses different colors of skin. He uses different straightness or curliness of hair. Some are a little taller and some are a little shorter. And God puts them together all with intentionality, fearfully and wonderfully made. And notice he says, my soul knows it. In the heart of every agnostic and every atheist, his soul knows that he was made by God. And he is not a self-existent being. He began in the mind of God and he was fashioned and formed through the creative activity of God. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You know, modern technology has given us um, a little peek into what for thousands of years was hidden from us. And we are able to see now through sonogram technology what God has always seen happening secretly in the womb. And for every mom and dad who find out that there is a child growing in the womb, it it is always one of the most exciting moments when you get to go see that unborn child growing and, and we're even endeared and attached to that child and we even start thinking, I think he looks like you. I, I think he looks like me. I, what should we name it? He looks like a... And we start to think that way and we become attached relationally to this child now in a way earlier because of sonogram technology. Do you understand that God has always been that intimately involved in seeing what's going on? He says, my frame was not hidden from you. Deep inside, God sees it and knows it. And do you know what that means? Because God has intricately made you, that you have purpose. You were meant to be exactly who you are. You were meant to have that color of hair and that size of a nose and and that size of feet and how tall you were. God determined that. And so to stand back and to be critical of something God has made is to fail to give him the worship that he designed you to reflect in your life. Our soul was not hidden. God delights in what he sees in the womb. In the same way that you and I delight when we see our children running around on a playground or crawling up a a jungle gym, God has always delighted in seeing what was happening in the womb. So what has happened in the womb? What does happen? Every textbook, the science of embryology, all shout to us that life begins at conception. Before you were born, God created life. From day one through eight weeks, So many things are formed and fashioned. At the moment of conception, a new individual receives 23 chromosomes from mom and 23 chromosomes from dad, and it creates a brand new individual, unique 
human being. At 18 days after conception, a heart begins to beat and circulates its own blood, independent from the mom, 18 days after conception. 28 days after conception, a baby has eyes and ears and even a tongue. Muscles are being developed along a future spine. Arms and legs are bunny. 30 days after conception, the child has grown over 10,000 times its size and is one quarter inch long. 42 days after conception, the skeleton is formed. Brain coordinates movements of muscles and organs. Reflex responses have begun. Brain waves can be detected. A jaw starts to form, including teeth and taste buds. The unborn baby begins to swallow amniotic fluid. Fingers and toes are developing. 52 days after conception, spontaneous movement begins, including hiccuping, frowning, squinting, furrowing of the brow, pursing of the lips, moving individual arms and legs. His head turns, touching his face. He's breathing without air. The lungs begin to operate, stretching, opening of the mouth and yawning. Eight weeks after conception, listen, 4,500 structures that are in the adult body 4,000 of them have already been formed eight weeks after conception. At 12 weeks, at nine weeks from conception, an unborn baby will bend its fingers around an object placed in his palm. Unique fingerprints appear. Thumb sucking may occur. At 10 weeks, the unborn baby's body is sensitive to touch. He has eyelids fingerprints, and even fingernails are evident. At 11 weeks, vocal cords and taste buds form. Facial expressions and even smiles are evident in the womb. At 12 weeks, the baby's sex can be determined. An unborn baby is now about three inches long, weighing approximately two ounces. Fine hair begins to grow on his upper lip, chin, and eyebrows. At 15 weeks... An unborn baby is now five and a half inches long, weighing approximately five ounces. He or she is actively moving about inside the safety of the womb, and the baby turns and kicks and even somersaults. And finally, mom becomes aware she's pregnant. At four weeks, I'm sorry, at, uh, at 20 weeks, an unborn baby's ears are functioning, and he hears a mother's heartbeat as well as external noises like music. The baby is also able to experience pain at this point. Life-saving surgery can be conducted in the womb at this age. The baby's grown to about seven and a half inches long and weighs about 14 ounces. At 20 to 26 weeks, babies can sometimes survive on their own outside the womb but abortion is still legal beyond this limit. Fetal surgery is performed on babies in the womb to save their life while down the street a baby's life is taken by abortion. At 27 to 32 weeks, the unborn baby can recognize his mother's voice. He opens and closes his eyes and he knows the difference between waking and sleeping and he can even relate to the moods of the mother. At 32 to 40 weeks, an unborn baby triggers labor and birth occurs. 
of the 45 generations of cell divisions before adulthood, 41 have already taken place. Only four more come before adolescence. 90% of a person's development happens before that person arrives through birth. Is it any wonder in verse 15 that God says we are intricately woven? Everyone is unique. And in verse 16, he says this. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days were formed for me when it as yet were, were none of them. And so God indicates that his thoughts are like a book about the person. Do you know that there's already been a book written on you? Outlining what your days will be like? And there are children who have yet to be born, and yet the book has already been written on them? There's a book written on you, outlining the thoughts of God. And so as we consider our culture and our view towards sanctity, the sanctity of life, God's activity in forming an unborn child, we need to understand that abortion assaults God's sovereignty in creating individual life. And we need to ask the question, Who's responsible for that? Who's complicit in creating a culture that assaults God's sovereignty? Well, I want to suggest to you several different entities. First of all, lawmakers. In 1973, the United States Supreme Court struck down laws in all 50 states allowing abortion for any reason up to the moment of birth. The father of the child, even if the father is married to the mother, has no legal right to prevent an abortion. Abortion is legal in America through all nine months of pregnancy. As a result, 1.3 million abortions occur in America every year. Our lawmakers are complicit in every abortion. President Obama said this on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade a couple of years ago. We commemorate Roe versus Wade because in this country, everyone, everyone deserves the same freedom and opportunities to fulfill their dreams. Everyone? Everyone who is unborn deserves an opportunity for freedom and to fulfill their dreams. Number two, abortion providers like Planned Parenthood are also complicit. In the past three months and even this month in October, we've seen congressional hearings as a result of some videos that have been released capturing statements from those employed by Planned Parenthood where we are learning not only is Planned Parenthood killing children but they're dismembering those unborn babies and then selling their parts for profit at taxpayer dollars being involved. Providers are complicit. Fathers of those children who have encouraged or provided abortions are also responsible. Parents and grandparents who are trying to cover up the mistake of a daughter or a granddaughter are also responsible. Friends who have advised abortion, pastors and churches who have ignored the issue 
of abortion are responsible. Is it any wonder with all of that cultural stream that's been created that a 17-year-old girl who finds herself trapped, maybe not considering all the options, that she would choose an abortion and therefore become also responsible? In the United States, about half of all pregnancies are unplanned, unintended. Of all unintended pregnancies, four in ten result in an aborted child. That means that 21% of all pregnancies in the United States end in abortion. We are killing one-fifth of the population of our country every year. 42 million abortions occur worldwide every year. That means that every day, 115,000 children are introduced to the world through a chemical that's designed to kill them or surgical tools that are designed to rip them apart. And we're responsible in so many ways. So what is the key question when it comes to answering the question? People say, well, it's such a complex issue and and, and there's no simple answers. Listen, it is a sociologically complex issue. It is not a morally complex issue. It all comes down to how you answer one question. Here's the question. What or who is in the womb? That's the question. And how you answer that question trumps every other argument that you could possibly present for allowing abortion. Gregory Kulka has answered that question this way. If the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is needed. If what is growing in the womb is not a human being, have at it. It's as simple as pulling a tooth. Provides a little inconvenience for you, then rip it out, get it out of the way. But if the unborn is a human person, then no justification for abortion is adequate. It all comes down to whether or not what is growing in the womb is a creation of God, stamped with his image, designed with purpose, dignity, and value. So what are the justifications that people give for abortion? Well, first of all, they say unborn life is not human life. That doesn't even make sense legally. All 50 states have fetal homicide laws that if your negligence or your aggression results in the loss of human life in the womb, then you're guilty of manslaughter unless you're a physician performing an abortion. Some people say, well, it's not human life because it's just not big enough. It's just, it's too small. It's microscopic. Now, listen, as a person who is smaller than most people, I take offense to that, okay? (laughs) What you are saying is I am less human than people who are bigger than me. Most women are smaller than most men. Are you trying to argue that women are less human than men? It doesn't make any sense. Size is irrelevant to personhood. 
no matter how small. Some people say, well, it's not human life because of the level of development. It's just not developed. We already saw earlier so much development happens even in the first eight weeks. A four-year-old is not fully developed. He's less developed than a 14-year-old. And we all know 14-year-olds are less developed than they will be when their brains finally get put back in place, right? Are you trying to say that they're less human? You can't say that. Other people say, well, they're, they're still in the womb. They're not actually arrived on the planet. Can I ask you a question? When does where you are determine what you are? Does, does moving down a birth canal six inches somehow create life that didn't exist before? Absolutely not. Other people say, well, you can't call it human because it's the degree of dependency. They're so dependent. They're still very dependent. Listen, we're all dependent on other people at some point. Diabetics are dependent on insulin for their survival. Are you trying to say that diabetics shouldn't live or, or shouldn't be cared for? Do elderly people who depend upon the sustenance of other people helping them? Are, do you want to abort them too? There's simply no valid logical argument if you answer the question correctly that this is human life you have to understand that unborn life is human life other people say well a woman should have the right to choose for herself or a woman should have the right to privacy listen we all have at some level a right to privacy but where in our culture do people have a right to privately conspire to take the life of another person if that was happening in some neighborhood in downtown South Bend we would take away the right to choose and the right to privacy because of the risk of taking the life of another some people say women should have the right to choose it's a it's a women's rights issue um, our personal choices is what gives us freedom. It, it's true that men have not always championed equal rights for women, and for that, we should repent. But no one has unlimited rights to do everything you want to do. Your freedom of choice ends where your choice would take the life of another human being. Toddlers and teenagers can be inconvenient, difficult, and expensive. Does that mean that we should give moms the right to eliminate their lives? We would never argue for that. And by the way, some people say this is a women's rights issue. How hypocritical are you to champion women's rights knowing that half of the children that are killed through abortion are women? Are you really for women's rights? Then how would you allow the death of 700,000 women every year before they're born? Yeah, let's champion women's rights, all women's rights, even unborn women. People would say unwanted pregnancies is an undue hardship for people in poverty or people that are single moms, and you wouldn't want to put that undue hardship on them. Some people would say, well, what about children that are detected as being disabled? Sadly, 92% of all parents who receive a prenatal, 
diagnosis of Down syndrome choose to abort the life of that child? Even though up to half of those diagnoses can be false positives. It's not an exact science. And we know that in our culture and even the heart of Jesus was to care for the, the poorest and the, the, the least of these in society, those who had no voice. The disadvantaged are the ones that are to be cared for in a special way, especially those with no voice. Some people say, well, what about when the life of the mother is in danger? Do you know that that is almost a medical impossibility nowadays? It just simply never happens anymore, and yet it seems to find its way into every presidential debate. What about in cases of rape or incest? Again, less than 1% of all abortions have anything to do with that, and yet that seems to be the political football. Would we kill a person outside the womb, a three-month-old, if we found out that somehow this three-month-old was conceived through rape or incest? Does that make any sense? It doesn't make any sense. It's either human life or it's not. And we know that God can take the most tragic circumstances, even something as tragic as rape, and turn it into his good purposes. And then some would say adoption is not an option. I would say, why not? And maybe that's something that we as a church and, and, and we as a community of people need to make more accessible to people, to partner with organizations like pregnancy crisis centers or foster care or an organization that we've used even in our own family of safe families, and you'll probably hear more about that in the future as how we can partner with that. I was encouraged last week to learn that Cedarville University, where my kids go to school, has now made a bold statement to try to offset the abortion culture by announcing that any faculty member that would adopt a child would receive a $3,000 a year grant by the school per year per child to remove the financial barrier that so often is the reason why parents can't adopt, and maybe that's something that we should consider even in our own church. We need to understand that none of these arguments makes any logical sense, much less biblical sense. Here's the last thing we want to say. New life is possible with God. We understand that every life is precious to God. Preborn life is protected by God. But listen, if you're sitting here feeling condemned in any way, here's what you need to understand. The heart of the gospel is this. New life is possible with God. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter how horrible your sin is, even if you have murdered the life of an unborn child, there is new life possible through forgiveness and the grace of God. But please hear me. You do not experience freedom and forgiveness by minimizing the horror of your sin. You experience freedom and forgiveness by magnifying the power of grace. You say, well, God, just, I, I, God wouldn't understand what I've done is so horrible. God wouldn't want anything to do. Please listen to me. Do you understand that God the Father knows what it feels like to lose a child through death? In a sense, Jesus Christ was aborted 
on the cross? And God the Father watched that horror take place? God knows what it feels like. And it's okay. God God knows. And if you will come to him for grace in humble, honest, broken confession, God has grace for all who will repent and believe. I met Andrea, my wife, in 1992. But we didn't get serious about our relationship until 1993. And so I started to pursue her long distance. And and, uh, this was, of course, over 20 years ago. And if you remember, this is way before Al Gore invented the internet. And so there was no such thing as email, no cell phones, no texting. I mean, we had to really work hard. Uh, We had phones with cords attached to the wall. And and, and we had to call that way. And and, uh, we had to send smoke signals. This is in the dinosaur age. Um, We had to really work hard. We had to write letters. And we communicated about a lot of stuff to build our relationship. And so over the course of a year, we realized, hey, this, this thing could, might look like it might have a future. This could be a long-term thing. And when we got to that point, Andrea said, you know what, we, we need to talk. And so we sat down, and um, she shared with me something that day that she has shared with thousands of women all across the country. And today, I want you to have the opportunity of hearing what Andrea shared with me, watch this. Most people know me as the pastor's wife with five kids who is always smiling and trying to find out your name and find out who you are. But most people wouldn't know who I was about 25 years ago. As a young kid, I found myself becoming a very good liar I wanted my own way, but I also wanted to be well-liked. And so how that worked itself out is that I began to be just very good at being deceitful and lying. And when I was young, some of those lies had small consequences, but the older I got, the bigger the consequences became. And as a teenager, I would tell my parents I'd be one place and I'd really go to another. Um, I would tell them I'd be going out with one guy and I'd really go out with another guy. And as I turned 16, I started dating more one-on-one. And I started dating a guy and we got emotionally and physically way too deep, too fast. And I found out when I was 17 years old that I was pregnant. And again, I was still such a good liar that I didn't know where to go with that. I was still running from the light and living in the dark. And so because of that, I decided that I would have an abortion. I knew that I was actually murdering my own baby. And instead of bringing it into the light, I just ran further into the darkness. After that, I I started drinking. I was in despair. Um, I didn't really care much about my life or what happened to me. I figured because I took a life, my life should be taken um, at any time and wondered if I should even take my own. About that time, um, 
I found out about some people that really loved the Lord and they had sin in their life, but they would bring it to the light. They would own up to their struggle. They would be honest about their sin, which is something that I'd never done. And I started seeing in them what I wanted in my own life, which prompted me to um, just get honest with another woman about my sin and about the choices that I had made. And as I met with that woman, I was just confronted with my heart and she didn't let me wiggle out of it. She was pretty hard on me. And I left her and just went and had some time of just meeting with the Lord. And at that point, everything in my life started to change. I started to see my sin for the wickedness that it was. And I saw how my sin had offended a holy God and I didn't want to live that way anymore. It makes me think of 2 Corinthians 7 where Paul talks about worldly sorrow that leads to death or godly sorrow that leads to life. And I just thought in my life that because I had guilt and because I experienced conviction that I must be okay with God but I didn't understand the difference between those two types of convictions. When I started getting around these people and seeing genuine repentance and genuine godly sorrow, I realized I didn't have anything like that and I wanted it. It looked attractive to me. And so I went before the Lord and God just started showing me my heart and the wickedness and the evil that lived inside of me. I didn't know what else to do so I just started at the top of my head and I went to my feet and I just gave God every part of me and I just said I want you to be Lord of my life I'm tired of knowing truth somewhere out there but never being able to obey it and being able to change and live a life that has life and hope I couldn't get enough of God's Word um, I started to lean into it and let it define me instead of my own thoughts and my own feelings. Um, one example would just be the forgiveness. For so long I kept thinking that I had to punish myself for all the wrong choices that I'd made, for all the sin that I'd been involved in. And yet as I started to read the Word and understand what it was saying, I learned that Jesus paid it all for me. Jesus paid for my sin. He was my ransom. That's why He gave His life so that He could redeem me and actually buy me back. I can never repay the debt that I owe to the Lord, and yet that's why Jesus had to come. I still fail all the time. Um, I make so many stupid decisions. I, I still sin, and yet now I know where to go with it. I know to bring it in the light. I know what to do with sin. You confess it so that then you can be free of it and walk in the light. Just leaning into the Word every day and letting Jesus, who is my life, be my life, my joy, my love, my passion. It is all wrapped up in Him. So many people ask me why I would even share that. Like, um, they say, you look like you have your life all together now, and um, you're the pastor's wife of this growing church. Why would you even 
let people know that. Why don't you just keep it in the back and kind of keep it covered? And it's the past. Why don't you let the past go? And um, I guess the main reason that I do keep sharing that is because I want this to be a safe place. And I want us to know that we're all broken. And there's just equal ground at the foot of the cross. And that God is not looking for um, perfection or people who have no sin, but he's looking for people who are broken and who are willing to own up to their sin and come to the light. And um, I love the gospel because the gospel is our hope. The gospel is our hope of change. And um, even as Trent was talking this morning about how God murdered his own son, that was the price. His blood was the only perfect, precious blood that could buy broken people like us back. And that's how much he loved us. And so now we get to love people with the same love that he loved us. And that's the gospel. And um, I don't know your past. I like to think that I know so many people at Harvest, but really, I probably only know about half of you. <laughs> and um, I don't know your past. I don't know what shame, what thing you're covering, what issue you have. But I know there's grace for that. And I know there's a Savior. And there is a Redeemer who laid down his life so that you could live yours free. We don't have to stay bound by those things anymore because of what Jesus did. Thanks, honey. You know, some of you, you, you come to church and you, you look for um, an inspirational word or something to get you through the week. Or you just, you just kind of want to breathe maybe some air that's not polluted. And yet you wonder why there's a disconnect between you and God. And this is the issue. You've never owned your sin. You've rationalized it. You've minimized it. You've justified it. You've blamed others for your sin. But you have never, in brokenness, in honesty, and in confession, come to the place that you saw Andrea articulate on that video. And what you may have done may be much more grotesque or much more minimal than what you've heard this morning. And yet, we all come to Christ the same way. And we all continue to come to Christ the same way. The moment you swell up with pride and think that God's sanctifying work is finished in you is the moment that you lose intimacy with God. And so if God seems distant, if God seems far away, it's probably because you have forsaken the ongoing process of repentance and faith, confession, brokenness, and honesty. And so I don't know what you think we do around here, the reason we sing our faces off at the beginning of the service is because we understand the offer of grace 
that has been given to us through Jesus. The reason that we open the book and we examine what God has to say about things like life is to bring us to a place of confession and brokenness and forgiveness. And so I want to invite you this morning just simply to bow your heads. And before we dismiss, would you just, in a quiet moment there before the Lord, would you humble yourself and acknowledge at whatever level the Lord is calling you to, where he finds you this morning? Where does he find you? Have you minimized, rationalized, justified sin? Even as it relates to this issue of abortion. Maybe you haven't committed murder, but you have wished someone out of existence because of the anger and the hatred, the bitterness that's there. Jesus said it's on the same level. Maybe you're involved in sexual activity outside of marriage. You're putting yourself in a position to be a candidate for abortion because of you're living your life outside of the boundaries that God's given. Why don't you right now just humble yourself, acknowledge your need before God, accept His free offer of forgiveness, cleansing, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can walk out of here clean this morning if you'll come to Him in brokenness. Lord, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for your spirit's conviction this morning. And God, we want to breathe in everything you have for us all of the grace, all of the mercy all of the forgiveness that's found when we will be honest and broken about our sin thank you for fresh starts new life that's possible through the gospel and I pray that for many today they would find that new place of freedom as they stop rationalizing and blaming their sin on others pray, God, that this would be a fresh start for so many, that we'd walk out of here amazed, in awe of who you are, and loving people like us who so often, who have ignored what you've said about our lives and about the lives of others. And God, would you make us a force for truth and for life in this community? Give us courage, give us boldness to stand for truth and to offer salvation to those who have yet to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and